0: Okay, so we are closing out Faith's Hall of Fame, and so far we've talked about um, we've talked about Abel, we've talked about Enoch, we've talked about Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and uh, last week we or two weeks ago we talked about Jacob and Isaac, and then Moses. Now, <coughs> as I said before, and uh, as we read through the rest of the text tonight in Hebrews chapter 11, the author is really uh, stressing the humanity of these individuals. <coughs> and one thing that I'll, I'll have to correct myself on that I said two weeks ago was whether it was notable or notable to me that it seemed that two of the big titans who weren't mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 were David and Solomon, but in fact, David is mentioned. Uh, as we'll cover that tonight. But one thing, I, I'll, there's, there's an oddity, there's a mystery that I haven't been able to solve yet uh, that we'll see in the text tonight in that thus far, we'll we notice that the author of Hebrews is proceeding sequentially, chronologically, down through uh, history, through redemptive history. And as a matter of fact, he's actually moving through the Old Testament, right? So Genesis, uh, and Genesis. Moving on from Genesis to Exodus, and and then um, tonight into the period of the Judges, Kings, and Prophets. But there's something interesting. There's a turn of events that happens in the text tonight. Maybe you can help me solve it. I was looking at it today, and I started jotting things down on paper, and said, "Well, this is some. There's something, something here that." I think we're supposed to see that I'm not seeing. So, but we'll talk about that. So, we've talked about you know the humanity and I think the point being is that in spite of the humanity and the frailty, they were able to they were able to do great things mm-hmm. because of the faith that God had given to them. And that we have the same access, we have the same faith. So, potentially we have we have the same potentiality to do all of the things that God has called us to do. It's not necessarily a given. And there will be times when, when we will, when we will draw back, when we will weaken. We see that in the lives of those that we've talked about already. We saw that uh, we saw the, the frailty and the failures in the life of, in the life of Abraham. Uh, we saw in the, in the lives of Isaac and Jacob and, uh, And certainly in the life of Moses. But faith is something that God gives. And so it is his gift. And so it enables those who are frail, humans, we are frail, to do the things that God has called us to do. Okay, so having said that, we're going to press on in Hebrews chapter 11 by uh, starting at verse 30 tonight. Now, this part begins with... uh, uh, the group of people, the Israelites, who had come out, they crossed over the Jordan and they come upon Jericho. So it says in verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for uh, for seven days. So I went on. Uh, I, d- I wanted to. Okay, let's let's see. If you turn to the last page in your in your notes, there, there's actually a sketch that. Um, I pulled off of Answers in Genesis, which was based on, on archaeological digs that have been done around Jericho. So this is, that's a cross section of the wall that surrounded Jericho. Now if you'll notice in the, on the bottom right hand, there's, there are people there for scale. So that is the interior part of the wall. So that initial retaining wall that those men are standing next to is 12 to 15 feet high. Then on top of that, there is a mud brick wall that was six feet thick, an additional 20 to 26 feet high. And then you see that earthen embankment. Now the earthen embankment of of ancient fortified walls wasn't just dirt. Usually what you had in there was you had dirt, stones and timbers that were interspersed in there. So that when they Struck the outside of the wall with like a battering ram or something like that. All it would do would actually it would actually strengthen the wall, right? Because everything, everything compacts. So you have that that embankment there, that earthen embankment, and then as you move to the outside of the wall, now notice there what it says to the, on the bottom left corner that it was forty six feet from ground level to the base of the top wall in Jericho and then that exterior wall was an additional 20 to 26 feet high. Mm-hmm. So this was no, you know, thin brick wall. This was quite, quite, quite the structure. Some of these ancient walls were just incredible. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the wall around Babylon, the wall around the ancient city of Tyre, Tyre 250, 150 feet high, right? And so this was what the Israelites were told uh, to take the wall, that God would take the wall down if they marched around it once a day for six days. And on the seventh day, they were to march around it seven times. And when they blew the trumpet, the wall would fall down flat. From an archaeological perspective, that is exactly what they have discovered happened. And so, uh, uh, imagine being faced with an obstacle like that and then uh, you being told that all you got to do is march around it and when the time is right, that wall is going to come down. So, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Now, we move on to, yes.
1: So, I remember seeing an archaeological
0: Maybe so. I and don't. Yeah, w- w- the article that I read years ago—I used to subscribe to Biblical Archaeology Review—is because I, I think the uh, the biblical accounts is the walls fell down flat, mm. and uh, and that's exactly what the archaeologists at Biblical Archaeology Review indicated that the walls fell down flat. Okay, so there was a complete and immediate collapse of the walls. Yeah.
1: Well, that's—they showed a complete. <coughs>
0: be that as it may uh, how many of you would like to just you know let's there's that brick sign out there that says grace academy on the front of marcher you march around that once a day for 6 days march around it seven times on the 7th day and it's going to fall down flat right so so it was quite an act of faith right okay so now we move on to verse 31 by faith the harlot rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. So let's turn for a moment in our Bibles to Joshua chapter 2 and uh, take a quick look at this. Joshua chapter 2. Some interesting things, a couple of interesting things about Rahab here that uh, many Christians know about, but I'm not sure that all Christians know about. In Joshua chapter 2, verse 1, we read, <coughs> excuse me, Now Joshua the son of Nun sent out two men from the Akiah grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. So, har- so Rahab was, a couple things about Rahab. Number one, She was a a prostitute. Number two, she was a Gentile prostitute. Okay. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the, the men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. So she was, she was the, the uh, obviously, there was some sort of, some sort of informant that somehow let the king know that these men were in the company of Rahab. And so she's faced with potentially a life, a life-ending decision here. So she chose to lie to the king or the king's emissaries and say no the men had left when in fact she was hiding them on the roof of her house verse 6 but she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stock of flax which he had laid in order on the roof then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan to the Fords and as soon as those who pursued them had gone out they shut the gate now before they lay down she came Up to them on the roof, and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two uh, kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Shihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any, any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Okay, so here now we have a prostitute who's a Gentile who has been given faith. This faith that we've been talking about in Hebrews chapter 11. So she was a believer. She had been given that faith. Now, it's interesting if you read some of the early church fathers, I think it's Clement who is actually a first generation disciple of, I think it was either the Apostle Paul or the the Apostle John, says in his writing that this woman had the gift of prophecy, which I found to be interesting because what that tells you is the early church did not define the gift of prophecy as being able to foretell the future but of being able to see how everything is lining up and how things are going to end up going. So when she heard of everything that had been going on, she did the math in her head and said, "Yeah, this is this is it. You know, they are going to be victorious because obviously God she's looking, she's hearing the stories and she's looking how the people around her are responding and she says, "Yep, this is going to go down this way." So she 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 takes the chance and places her faith in the fact that God has given Jericho over to the Israelites, to the Jewish people, and she's going to do what she can to harbor and protect these men and her family. So, so she's there. A, a prostitute and a Gentile is in there. But it gets even more interesting. Now, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. So in Matthew chapter 1, you know, we have the, the genealogies that everybody likes to, for the most part, blow over because it's hard enough pronouncing the names most of the time than, um, than trying to figure out what's their purpose of being there. But notice this <clears throat> starting at verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Interesting that there are, there are, um, there are f- four women mentioned in this genealogy and it's very unusual to find women mentioned in Jewish genealogies. There's a, there's a point there, there's a, a real big point there, but that's for another study, the study in the Gospel of Matthew. Perez begot Hezron and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon and Nashon begot Salmon. Here we go. Salmon begot Boaz by who? By Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse and Jesse begot David the king. Is that
1: the same Rahab?
0: It is the same Rahab. Yes, but it's the same. Well, the book of Ruth takes place during the book of Judges, which was shortly after. Yeah, it doesn't make sense, does it? Let me let me do some research on that. But I've always I've always read that it was the same Rahab. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: I have too. But I, I I've read yeah. similar things, but it just doesn't seem to line up in, in the way. Well.
0: Yeah, well, let, let me let me look into that, okay? But from my understanding, what I've always read is that Ray, that's the Rahab of Jericho, okay? All right. Anyway, so there is, there is uh, Rahab. So Rahab, Rahab plays a prominent role, uh, we think. We'll have to confirm it. i will have to confirm it by looking at that closer. But back to Hebrews chapter 11. So, the walls of Jericho, verse 31, By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. What more shall I say, for the time would fail to tell me of Gideon? Okay, let's take a look at Gideon in Judges chapter 6, verse 11. Now, as we go through this, keep bear in mind that what the author of Hebrews here is stressing the, the humanity and the frailty involved in humanity. Mm-hmm. Judges chapter 6. six? Uh, no, hold on. Let me look. Judges chapter 6, verse 11. Okay. In Judges chapter 6, verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree which was in Oprah which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if, now notice the way he's responding to God here, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about saying, did, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. Okay, so there he has kind of a, you know, it, it, it's, it seems to me that he's kind of, well, yeah, well, where where is this God? You know, where are his promises? So he seems to be a bit cynical here in his response. Okay, now, um, so we know this. So someone tell me the story of Gideon right, Some summary, right, so beyond this, well, where is this God, you know, we've heard of his promises and miracles, but where is he, if, if he's around, then why are we, why are we being oppressed by the Midianites, now, remember, it says there that he had, they had to hide the wheat from the Midianites, because the Midianites would raid the land, and, and take all of their stuff, right, okay, so, so, God comes, appears to Gideon, and Gideon responds with a somewhat cynical way. Uh, and, and then what does he ask God to do? After that, okay. Yeah, well he, the fleece, right?
1: Right. Two signs with one fleece.
0: Okay, which one came first? Because he tested God twice, not just once. Fleece would be dry, and when that happened, he said, Oh yeah, okay, but let's try this, <laughs> right?" And then the next time, it's
1: opposite. All the is dry, and the fleece is wet.
0: And remember, he took it up and was able to wring a bunch of water out of it, right? Okay, so so he does that. He puts God to the test, and and God God act, doesn't acquiesce, but he condescends to prove that. So then Gideon goes out, and he was to choose, ultimately choose how many men? 300. 300. And of the select, how was he to select the men that God told him, God gave him a selection process, right?
1: So the first group, he said, if you're afraid and want to go home, go home. Yep. And then God said, there's still two men. Yep. And then he says, All right, take them down to the river and let them drink, and I'll tell you.
0: Yeah, and which ones did he tell Gideon to pick? Yes, yes, those are the ones. So the story goes, that happens, and they surround the Midianite army, you know, the, the torches in the, pitch, in the pitchers and all of that. Mm-hmm. And so they're successful. They, they, they defeat the Midianites, and so Gideon's doing great. Now uh, move ahead to Judges chapter 8. Starting at verse 22. This is after the battle. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of the Of, the Midian, of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me earrings from his plunder, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, We will gladly give them, and they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around their necks. So what does Gideon do with it? Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city. Oprah and all all Israel played the harlot with it there, and it became a sneer to Gideon and to his house. See? But yet he's in Hebrews chapter 11, Faith's Hall of Fame. In spite of his failings, in spite of his frailties, it was the faith that God had given him that empowered him to do the things that God had called him to do. Okay, so now let's go back to Hebrews chapter 11 and continue. All right, so we've talked about uh, the walls of Jericho. We've talked about Rahab. That's still an open question. I'll get an answer, definitive answer for you for next time. We've talked about Gideon. Now, what about Barak? So, Barak, we find something about him in Judges chapter 4. Now, this was under the the, uh, the judgeship of Deborah, which in and of itself is a statement as to the state of the people during this time. In Judges chapter 4, verse 1, when Ehu was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Caesarea, who dwelt in Hesherith Hagoyim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Leep, Leep Lepidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit down under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinom, from Kadesh in Naphtali and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. So by making this statement, Deborah is implying that Barak had already received the command to, uh, to get an army and to go against these people. Um, verse 7, And against you I will deploy Caesarea, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. But look at Barak's response. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Right? Right. No, no, you got it right. You, you got it right. So there's a reason why, at this time, Deborah is judging, the land. She's the judge, and so she calls Barak up on the carpet and say, Hey, haven't you been told, to muster an army and to go against these people? And and I'm going to bring them against you, but I will deliver them into your hand. And he says, well, I'll go, but only if you go with me. I won't go if you don't go with me. And verse 9, so she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. For the Lord will sell Cesare into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And then if you go in Judges chapter 5 and read the song of Deborah, Notice there it says in verse 1, then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, right? And, and it goes through praising God, but it also praises God for raising up a woman to kill this, to kill this person. Again, you see, you see that, that what God had determined to do through Barak, he did in spite of his failings, in spite of his frailty. That's the point of Hebrews chapter 11. Okay, now let's talk about Samson. We talked about Samson for, for, a, uh, for a few minutes last, last time we met. And I don't have the scripture text here because it's too extensive. But notice here that we're talking about judges, right? We're now in the period of the judges. Okay, so, so what can you tell me about Samson? Samson from birth, was a what? He was a supernatural strength. His supernatural strength was based upon what? That he was a Nazirite from birth. What are the three things that Nazarites are not supposed to do? Give me one. Cut your hair. hair. Give me another one. Touch Touch a dead thing. Give me another one. Fruit of the vine. vine. (laughs) Samson threw a drinking party. There goes that one. He ate honey out of the carcass of a dead lion. There goes that one. And with his hair, with Delilah, because of his weakness for women, he loses his hair. So in spite of, he was, he was the, you know, the, I would say the prototypical extreme carnal Christian. He was a man who was driven completely by his fleshly appetites. Yet, in spite of that, because of the faith that God gave him, and notice it came at the end of his life. He was able to do the thing that God had called him to do. Okay. Now we move on to Jephthah. This is another interesting character. Uh, for Jephthah, let's turn to Judges chapter 11. It is. And, and uh, you know, I've heard countless people try and explain it away somewhere, but there's just... There's no way to explain it away. So, okay. So let's look at Jephthah. What, what, what was his background here? In Judges chapter 11, verse 1, we read, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead begot Jephthah. Okay. So now you, you get more information about Jephthah When you read verse 2, Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So he was, Jephthah was the illegitimate son of Gilead, the son of a prostitute, right? Born out of wedlock, and, you know, he's driven out from the land. Um, so we read that now let's drop down to verse 29, same chapter. So the story goes on, you know, Jephthah, you know, he's, he's, he's going to do what God has called him to do. And now we see Jephthah in full action, beginning at verse 29. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed through Mizpah of Gilead. From Mizpah of Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon. Then Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them and the Lord delivered them into his hands and he defeated them from Ar as far as Minnith so on and so forth okay so Jephthah wins the battle okay so let's drop down uh, to chapter 12 oh yeah wait a minute yes you're right um 34. Then then Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, and there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. Wait a minute. You have brought me very low. Was it her fault? Yeah. What
1: was best case scenario if he said whatever comes out of my house it was either his daughter his wife or a servant. Well, no no, at that an at, that's right. Oh, it it was, his property,
0: no, was No no no. It was animals. typical for animals to dwell in, in the house. yes, to dwell in the house. You know, goats and sheep typically they would dwell. So the the it would be one house and it would be segmented, yes. right? Okay. So God didn't ask him to do that. Did his victory depend on his being willing to make that vow? Absolutely not. He made the vow, and a vow is a vow. And so, yeah, a dangerous, a stupid one. And then when his only child is the one who walks out the door, he blames her. Oh, you have brought my life very low. No, Dad, you're the dummy. You shouldn't have done this. Right. And so verse 36, um, again, alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot go back on it. So she said to him, my father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, the people Ammon. Okay, so there we see again. We see that God had (coughs) accomplished through Jephthah what he had had purpose to accomplish through him, and he gave Jephthah the faith to be able to accomplish that in spite of Jephthah's failings and his humanity. Okay, so we've got Jephthah. We've got that. Um, Now, back to Hebrews chapter 11. Now, here's where... You know, we're going to talk about the mystery a bit. Okay, verse 32, I'll read that again. And what more shall I say for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets? (coughs) Okay, now do you notice anything different there? Do you notice anything out of the pattern that we have followed so far Hebrews chapter 11 um, David appears there's a there's a break in chronological sequence right so Gideon actually in in the historical narrative comes after Barak Correct. Barak comes first also Samson in the historical narrative comes after Jephthah right and David comes after Samuel. Samuel was the last of the judges. So I'm like, there's got to be a reason for that. What do you think? I didn't. It, this just came to me as I was looking at the passage today, this afternoon and preparing for tonight. I said, wait a minute, there's a break in chronological sequence there. God doesn't do things randomly. So up until now, in Hebrews chapter 11, he's followed it. There's been a laying down. In in chronological sequence, but now when we get here, there's a break in chronological sequence. It's reversed. So, So, step one, chronologically speaking, is Barak. Step two is Gideon. Jephthah is step three. Samson is step four. Samuel is step five. David is step six, but that's not the way it flows through historically. So, there is a mystery there. I don't, so, I don't think so, because we're looking at it from a chronological perspective, right? chronologically from a time perspective, right? So that's an interesting enigma there. I haven't figured it out yet. Anyone got any ideas? Let we'll venture to guess? Okay, maybe you can help fi- help me figure it out answer, Well no i I don't have it. I didn't have enough time to think it through, you know, but there there's there's something there. There's definitely something there. Okay. Anyway, moving on. Verse 33, who worked faith, subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained the promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Obviously, that's a reference there to Daniel, right? Quenched the violence of fire. Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Well, what's the point of all this? Well, we'll get to it here at the end. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, right, Isaiah, right? Isaiah had to go on the run from from Manasseh. Because uh, Manasseh had put a contract out on him, and so Isaiah went out on the run, and, um, and in fact, in in rabbinical writings, in ancient rabbinical writings, the story goes that Isaiah went and hid in a hollow tree, and they discovered him, and while he was in the tree, they saw the tree in half, and that's how Isaiah blasted off into eternity. <coughs> um. They were stoned, they were sawn into, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. So why did they go through this? Why, you know, you think of now going all the way back to Abel and marching forward from there chronologically. Why do they subject themselves to all of these things? All these have obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. So the promises that were made to them were not something that they expected to receive in this life. Right? We talked about Abraham several weeks ago. God had given him the land and he went to the land, but he spent his entire life living the life of a nomad. He never planted roots anywhere because he knew Although that God had given him the land, it was given to him and his descendants, he would not personally receive the inheritance until the resurrection in the kingdom. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So that is the, the bottom line is, is there's that faith that God imparts to his people. That enabled them to do the things that God has called them to do in spite of their human frailty, in spite of their human failings. We all have them. We all have the frailty. We all have the failings. But with this faith that God gives us now, you know, if you you read the notes there, I talk in the notes about the expansion of faith. But here's the thing what Jesus said was that, remember when the um, uh, when the disciples, you know, tried to uh, I think it was try to cast, try and cast a mute demon out of a child. They could not do it. And Jesus said to them, if you had faith as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be removed and thrown into the sea and it would happen. And so, what what I mean by our faith expands, it's not as if Our faith starts out as a mustard seed and grows, you know, like a mustard seed into a mustard tree. No. The expansion of our faith means we take that mustard seed, and the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, right? So that's how powerful faith is, right? So if we take that mustard seed of faith, we expand it when we take it and apply it to different areas of our life, right? We apply it to our finances. We apply it to... Our relationships, we apply it to, you know, to to all of the things that we have to face as we move through this life. We're, see, we're on a journey, and we've been made specific promises. And the reality is, is you know, as you said on Sunday in your sermon, nowhere in the Bible does God promise you your best life now. That's a lie. That's false. That's a false prophet. The promises that God has given to us, he promises to give to us in the resurrection. And so we are not going to be made perfect until all who are going to be made perfect even in the future come. So it's like we all step into the inheritance at the same time. You see that? And so, okay, what, what what's the takeaway here? We're just about out of time. Is You know what? We all have failings. We all have human frailties. And so now let's pull this all back. Remember what the struggle was here with these, Messianic, mm-hmm. with, with these Messianic Jews. They were struggling. They were weakening in their faith because they were struggling. They were being persecuted. Many of them had been shunned. Many of them had, you know, your, you, you were subject to the death penalty essentially, right? You lost all of your possessions. Your family would have nothing more to do with you. So they were facing that kind of external pressure. Plus, they were also under external pressure. that They were hearing something that they were totally unaccustomed to. According to the Jewish view, as it is even to this day, the Messiah will be fully human. And actually, they were expecting two messiahs, which is interesting, right? It's interesting that they, that they do that because of the, because of the prophet of, of Isaiah, right? And so there are, there are, I, the Messiah is portrayed in two different ways in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 1 to 39, he's, he, is, he is portrayed as the conquering king who will come to judge and destroy the enemies of God's chosen people, right? And then from verse 40 to 66, he's portrayed as the suffering savior right and so the jews seized upon that first but they saw the second so they conclude that there are two messiahs that are coming right and so they they were confused about that and they and they were they were beginning to waver and so the author of hebrews actually got under the inspiration is showing them that that same faith that Enabled those who despite all of their human frailty and failings were able to accomplish the mission that God had for them. That that same faith was resident in them and that God would persevere them through to the end. Not necessarily without suffering and without pain and sorrow. That's what, that's what we're called to. And believer, the same thing is true to you. You have human frailties, you have failings, you have insecurity, but two things, two things that I know to be true from a scriptural perspective, that if you are indeed a true child of God, then the same faith, that same muster seed of faith that was in Abel, that was in Enoch, that was in uh, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, Jacob, Moses, Jephthah, Samson is in you. I know that for sure if you're a believer. Number two, if that faith is in you and you are a true believer, then God has something for you to do here. He has something for you to do. And in spite of your failings, in spite of your frailties, you know, you're going to fall down. You're going to fail. You, you get up, you dust yourself off, and you keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. And that's really the point of Hebrews chapter 11. Mm-hmm. Okay. And to quote the famous uh, philosopher, uh, and that's all I have to say about that. Forrest Gump. Any questions? Okay, he is—he is my favorite philosopher. As a matter of fact, you know one of the one of the movies that I don't know if you've ever seen that movie Castaway. Yeah. Tom, that's really a classic, you know. So anyway, all right. So any questions? Yeah. Okay. All right. So next week, Lord willing, chapter 12. um, I'm going to buzz through it. And then we'll close out with chapter 13 in two weeks.